Welcome to Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to spreading more empathy throughout the world. Today's episode is brought to you by Grant Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I'm joined by Kyla Brophy, who is a PhD candidate and Vanier Scholar in Counseling Psychology at my alma mater, McGill University. Her research investigates how compassion fosters resilience and well-being. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. You are currently putting research and theory into practice as a psychology training at the Allen Memorial Institute. So thanks for making the time to chat with our audience today. We have to start with a simple, simple question. What is self-compassion? Yeah, and what a question. Um, so I'm gonna try and take off the, the technical scientist researcher hat um, and think about this from a, a personal and, and interpersonal perspective. So I think that we can think of self-compassion as as compassion turned inward. There's some debate in the scientific literature about how we define self-compassion and, and what exactly compassion is. And I've seen this in your work, Anita, in thinking about empathy from a cognitive perspective and from an affective perspective. And I think we can think about it also from an embodied perspective and a physiological perspective. So there's a lot of sort of official definitions out there which are important to us when we're wanting to assess compassion and self-compassion in order to measure it either in a clinical context or um, in a scientific context to be able to, to do research on it. But what we can think about is a sensitivity to suffering in ourselves and in others with a commitment and a motivation to alleviate and prevent that suffering. I see that as so important because I teach millennials who I love, you know, like I love them. I, lo I love the Gen Zs. I love their energy. I love everything about them. And I only have to scratch kind of one layer and there is so much angst and pain and turmoil and stress and anxiety and loneliness and confusion and you know one of the things that I share with my students is isn't it interesting that we're thinking all day long and we believe our thoughts like what if we questioned our thoughts so is some of the self-compassion work that you do about kind of like challenging your thoughts Definitely. So I think that um, this cognitive component, the thought component that we think of is a huge part. And so there's there's part of that is is turning your attention inward with self-compassion and, and noticing that there's suffering or noticing that there's distress or discomfort um, or the pain. And this doesn't have to be like capital P pain, some sort of profound experience. There's a lot of stress and difficulty in the world that we might you know want to, to kind of ignore. And I think that sometimes the automatic way that we can respond to that can be to be kind of a harsh coach um, or like be really hard on ourselves and say like, why am I feeling this way? I just need to keep going. Um, and then to, to notice those thoughts. And then this is such a classic idea in psychotherapy is like notice the thought and then see if you can come up with a more balanced thought is sort of the first, the first piece. So I think that, that thoughts and cognitions are definitely like a core component in the research that you've done, like the lit review or the conversations you've had or the conferences you've been to or whatever, what self-compassion ideas have really struck you? Like either some research study or some impact, or I don't know, like some, some intervention, like what, what has touched you in your research so far? 
I think, I mean, firstly, doing research on on self-compassion and compassion is an interesting space to be in because on the one hand, people light up about it and are like, oh my gosh, I want to talk about that. I've had this personal experience and it was so impactful. And then on the other hand, there's this sort of view that, oh, it's like so fluffy, um, like compassion, you know, why would you do, be doing research on that? That's just sort of this like fluffy, soft, weak way of, of being. And I think what initially stood out to me and grabbed me about doing research on self-compassion is that um, even though we may have the, these preconceptions that that being kind to ourselves or paying attention to what's going on for ourselves and, and doing something about it is sort of like self-centered or narcissistic or um, selfish or makes you weak, all of the research shows the complete opposite, that being self-compassionate is associated with increased motivation, increased creativity, more engagement with the world, improved relationships, um, a decreased symptoms of mental health challenges. So it's sort of interesting to see where, where public conceptions and, and also personal um, biases, you know, I, at first I was also like, okay, but if I'm going to be, you know, kind to myself then how, and all the time, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to have that motivation to push hard and to, to reach the next goal and to, you know, the idea of pushing yourself is something that we love in academia and society in general, I think. Um, and then seeing this research, you're like, oh, well, you know, the science says this is not the case. So how, okay. I remember studying empathy and deciding that I was going to do little like empathy experiments to see whether or not I could flex my empathy muscles and how that felt. And I actually remember getting, you know, really addicted to all the ways that I could show up as a more empathic person in the world. Right. And I think over time, like I've become a kinder person. I have, I, I believe um, just by virtue of doing the research and, and by thinking and talking about empathy a lot. So how has self-compassion touched you personally? Um, have you noticed a change in how you behave and how you treat yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I can sometimes feel a little bit ironic st um, studying self-compassion in, in an environment um, or getting into my mindset where I'm the tough coach and the self-critic on myself about needing to do more and always needing to increase productivity. And then taking a moment to, to sort of, even, especially ironic when you're working on like writing something about self-compassion and, and then like not getting the paragraph quite right and then starting to get into your head about it and then being like, this is ridiculous. How am I? currently in the practice of being this harsh self-critic while I'm reading a sentence about and so this to me has really emphasized that yeah there's the thought part there's the cognitive part but there's also this affective felt part to really feel something and so being able to notice the thought like so it gets my attention this is the first important piece and then to tune in to how I'm feeling and I love that you use the term like flexing a muscle when you talk about empathy, because it takes practice and being like, oh, okay, well that, you know, that muscle is currently seized and it's not like it's, you know, super tight like this and it's not, um, not able to expand and, and allow space for, for maybe taking a breath, for remembering that, um, that this experience is in a broader context and that I'm able to, to be kind to myself in this moment. And then that usually actually widens my window of awareness widens the, the, the distress tolerance window is sometimes how we hear it spoken about in, in therapeutic practice um, and then opens up new opportunities to be able to, to keep going in a new direction. So have you learned uh, to be more gentle and kinder to yourself? Is that like a work in progress then? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Yes, I think it's all it's a work in progress for all of us, you know, I think it's, um, I would love to say like, yeah, I'm perfectly self compassionate all the time. That's just how I live my life now. But I don't think that would be that sort of defeats the purpose. The purpose. 
yeah, I think it is an ongoing practice. Because I have a memory of being, um, a part, I was part of a fellowship with um, the International Women's Forum and these are like 36 incredibly powerful, impressive women. You read the bios before you go to the week one and you're like, why am I in this room? You know. And then when we actually in, started to um, introduce ourselves and this was all through like a facilitated um, uh, methodology, we discovered over a period of you know two, three days that we all kind of felt that way. It, like all of us felt that way about the cohort. So we all felt like there was a bit of an imposter syndrome. So imagine this kind of circumstance and most of them are kind of in the private sector corporate uh, types in the C-suites. Um, and I remember we were having a conversation and I blurted something out because it was really alive for me. And the way I expressed myself was really just a botched job. And somebody reacted and it kind of moved in another direction, but it sat with me for like half an hour in the pit of my stomach, burning away, like almost like they must be judging me. How like I have to fix that. I was prepared to come in the next morning and we always started the day with sort of like, so what's on your mind? And I was gonna give this whole diatribe about how I said the wrong, like it's still to this day. And this is more two, like, I don't know, at least two years ago, it still feels present for me. Like I, I don't know how to fix that. So what kind of self-compassion work could I do that would help me? Well, it was really interesting to me when you started that story that that you did first contextualize, like we were all feeling like imposter syndrome, but actually that was common for other people. And so then as you were talking about this experience that felt really like isolated to you and really like this, all eyes were on you and it was some sort of like personal individual thing that you had done wrong. I was sort of wondering, I'm like, was it just individual to you? Like, are you the only person who's ever, you know, said something maybe or had this burning desire to say something? And do you think other people noticed? Because there was a lot of kind of mind reading of imagining how they had had perceived you. Um, so that's like on the cognitive level, I think you can kind of, first of all, you're noticing the feeling. So that you're turning your attention. And then maybe there's a way that you can like think about these thoughts a little bit differently. And the part that's really interesting to me right now, and I guess as a clinician, trainee, and, and when I'm doing psychotherapy with people is to notice where you feel that in your body and to notice, wow, isn't it powerful that years later, this is still feeling alive for me. That experience was really, was really important. And you don't need to ignore it or necessarily to get rid of it because it's telling you something. And you know, how would it feel? There's varying ways that you can kind of approach this. But like if you're paying attention to where it feels in your body. Is it, you know, is it alive here? Oftentimes people in the chest or in the stomach can feel a lot of activation. What would it feel like to sort of like put your hand there with this idea of sort of soothing touch and to just be with it and imagine mm -hmm. that you can be this compassionate presence and you can offer yourself kindness and be like, man, that was difficult to feel. That was a hard time. I felt pretty embarrassed or pretty, you know, I don't want to project an emotion onto you, but yeah, I felt, you know, whatever you were feeling. Shame. Shame. Yes, shame is often something that can flare up when we start to be kind to ourselves because it's sometimes um, feelings that we've been suppressing or feelings that we feel that we shouldn't be feeling or that somehow the feeling is wrong. And we're getting into that cycle of, of judging how we're feeling and judging the thoughts. So just noticing the feeling and seeing if you can practice some acceptance of like, I am feeling shame right now. Mm. And then sometimes also, and this is the part I love, is thinking about self-compassion 
I think compassion towards ourselves and compassion for others is like, can you think of yourself as, as not this isolated person who just feels shame by yourself, but have other people felt shame? And, and shame is, is really a part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And I went to a lecture once where people were talking about how other, other species and other animals don't seem to feel shame the same way that, that human beings do. So even though this feeling is really painful, we can also think about like, wow, this feeling is, is part of what it is to be human. This, yeah, this feeling connects me to, to all of these other people who also experience shame in, in different contexts. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. <laughs> I will hold my belly if ever it comes back to me, that feeling. Um, what gets in the way of being self-compassionate? Why is it so hard to do? I think that there's an, a number of reasons that that being compassionate towards ourselves is difficult. And we talked a little bit about the misconceptions about worrying that being compassionate towards ourselves is selfish and it's gonna make us less productive um, or it's or it's like uh, too self-indulgent that we're focusing mm-hmm. on, on negative feelings and then maybe that means we're gonna feel them forever because we're giving our attention. And so for that last point, I mean, all of the, the research shows that the more you try and avoid a thought or avoid a feeling, the louder it gets. Um, and I think we've, anyone with kids has had the experience of, of knowing that small children are really good at getting your attention um, <laughs> if they need it. Even if maybe now isn't the greatest time, the, it might just get louder. Um, pets can also be a great reminder. I think of those alarm clocks that get gradually louder to like really make sure that you're awake. So, but we it makes sense that we want to avoid having to think about and pay attention to things that are painful. Like it, that's, it seems like a very human response to not want to, to dwell on things. So I think the fear of, of having discomfort and the fear of, of acknowledging pain can, can be difficult. And then the idea also that it's going to make you less productive is one that I hear a lot. Again, if you're compassionate towards yourself, it's going to get rid of your motivation and your drive. Um, and that I think links, we can think about that in terms of how our different emotion regulation systems work. And I, I used this explanation once in a room full of um, neuroscientists and felt a little nervous because it's, it's not a literal <laughs> or like accurate representation of how our brain works, but we can think about having sort of three different systems, like the threat system, that's gonna be the fire alarm to you know, notice if you're getting stalked by a lion and you need to run away really fast. Um, the drive system that, can be a source of great pleasure if it's like motivating you to do something and achieve the next thing. Think of like the next great meal um, that you wanna have, like anything appetitive or, or directing you forward, sex features with the drive system. And then we have the soothe system, which I feel is often the, the forgotten teammate here where we're, we're soothing and down-regulating and relaxing. And I think if we pause to sort of think about what our lives are like in, our Western cultural context, there's a lot of the threat system and a lot of the drive system. You know, it's the drive to do more, to achieve more, to be more active. And that's great if it's feeling good. I've noticed that the drive system and the threat system seem to get kind of connected for a lot of people where it's not just let's do this thing because I'm feeling really lit up by it and I really want to achieve that. It's if I don't do this thing, what's going to happen? Yeah. And like, what does this mean about, about who I am? And so then that feeling of, of fear of like, oh my goodness, if I don't keep going, if, if I pause, if I bring the soothe system online to really be able to, to be present with myself and to, um, to be kind to myself, if that feels scary, then it, it makes sense that you're, you're not going to do it because our, our threat system has evolved over 
many, many millennia to, uh, to make sure that we can survive and that we're going to outrun the lion and we're going <laughs> to outrun the cave bear. The issue is that we're not anymore um, being chased by cave bears. We're now getting chased by email notifications and Twitter alerts and um, news notifications that are coming, you know, into our homes 24 seven to, to notify us about some very challenging things that are happening in the world. So we're sort of inundated and always in this threat state. So how, okay, what you said earlier, maybe think of how would you know the difference between being in the soothing state that you talk about, sort of like a self-compassionate state versus, you know, distraction, which edges into procrastination. Like, you know, where, where are the lines there and how do you avoid going down the line? You know, can you speak to that? I think that is a great question. And that, that also is a question that um, when we do workshops on self-compassion and mental wellness um, for students or in workplaces, this question comes up a lot. And I think part of that is that it's this desire to be like, am I doing it right? Like, am I doing self-compassion right? Um, and which makes sense. And then you can also notice that thought and think like, well, do I need to do it right? Does it need to be, is there a right or a wrong way? And then also to, to sort of turn inwards and use that self-compassionate atten attention technique to, to look inwards and pay attention and tune in and say, well, how does this feel right now? And I think an example is if you're really not wanting to do something, like you've got a task that's really difficult. Um, and so you decide you're just going to like scroll for a while or you're going to, or even like watch TV or try and zone out, try and distract yourself. Distraction is a really powerful tool. I don't want to get rid of distraction for everyone. We need this, right? We need the ability to distract ourselves. When you are in that state of whether it's procrastination or distraction, how are you feeling? Like, are you continuing to carry the anxiety and the self-talk of you should be doing this other thing? Why are you not doing it? Oh, you're just procrastinating. You're never going to get this done. Or are you in a state of saying, okay, I'm going to take some time right now to, to check in, give myself a break, um, see how I'm feeling, and then commit to also like knowing that I need to get this task done, even though it's unpleasant and I'm, I'm gonna get it done. I'm just gonna take this time for myself. And I think, and you don't have to take the time for yourself. It's not always about taking a break to be self-compassionate. You know, Sometimes being um, self-compassionate can be about just pushing, pushing through and doing the hard things so that you're, you're able to, to relax or you're able to feel better. But I think that the, the response is often, or the answer to that question is within yourself. And within all of us and if you can tune in and really notice how you're feeling you can kind of get a sense of which system is is online like am i am i in the threat space right now and that's why i'm just trying to avoid and not do this am i able to to move more into a soothing space and if taking a break right now is what i need um then can i do that in a way that isn't gonna to fuel this procrastination anxiety hmm. so what would you recommend to parents with kids let's say toddlers to tweens uh in terms of what they could do to help a kid practice self-compassion do you have any tools so there there is a mindful self-compassion program for kids and for teens um and i think selfcompassion.org is where people can find information on that i believe there's a, a manual as well i think modeling is an incredibly powerful tool and kids notice how adults respond to themselves and respond to them. And part of, of my research and what I'm interested in is looking at self-compassion and emotion regulation. And if and regu emotion regulation can um, isn't a great term, I think, because it sounds like we're making rules and controlling our emotions. But really, emotion regulation is about experiencing and responding to our emotions. 
And part of how we learn to experience and respond to our emotions is by watching our caregivers and seeing how they respond to themselves. And we know that young children, their brains haven't yet developed the, the capacity to be able to regulate their own emotions all that effectively. We've all seen toddlers having temper tantrums. This is sort of where the brain is just firing in, in overwhelm. You know, it can't, can't bring itself back down. And part of how the brain develops the capacity to regulate emotions in that moment is through the caregiver co-regulating. And so being able to, um, you know, sometimes that does involve like setting boundaries or setting limits, but also responding to the, to the child's feeling and letting them know that, that feelings aren't wrong, which sounds a little bit cliche when I, I say it out loud, but to say, oh, you're feeling really overwhelmed right now. This is so hard. And then I always say gentle vocalizations and soothing touch is something that I think that people kind of naturally do when they see small children or cute animals, you know, um, in a presentation that, uh, that I've given a few times, we have this slide with all of these baby animals and the exercise is like, well, just respond to the slide however you want. And almost always the whole room goes, aw. <laughs> yeah. And so if we think about, about how that soothing works, um, it can be this very sort of basic, like the mammalian caregiving system of soothing touch, gentle vocalizations, acknowledging the feeling and helping redirect attention um, so that you can think flexibly of a way that might be able to, to solve this problem or to, or to distract in a, in a helpful way and, and kind of move forward. So modeling and co-regulating say are, are two big things. That's great, thank you. Uh, mental note has been made. Uh, my daughter's turning five in a couple of months. So last question, and you've been so kind to share so much with us. Um, how does self-compassion and social change, what's the connection there or what's, what connection do you see? I think that for me, self-compassion is so essential to social change and social change work. So on the one hand, I think self-compassion is, is essential um, to be able to, to widen your, your window of awareness and to be able to tolerate effectively the discomfort in order to engage with it and then decide how you're going to, to do something. Because the key piece of compassion also is this motivation sense. You know, we're not just noticing the suffering and tuning in and feeling it. That is going to make you feel overwhelmed and totally burnt out. And we kind of hear this around compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue. There's also the piece of, of being able to resource yourself to cope with your own feelings of, of distress. Notice that you're feeling that way. And then act in a way that is effective and that is, is meaningful and helpful to work towards the social change piece. And being able to, to engage with other suffering through being compassionate towards others requires that you're also able to be compassionate towards yourself. Otherwise you will burn out. You know, you're gonna give away all of your resources um, and, and not be able to also take care of yourself. So I think part of the, the sustainability factor of these um, long efforts at, at trying to, to change big systems of injustice and, and work on really big issues is being able to make sure that that you're surviving and enduring and and able to be present. Yeah, it makes me think of um, you probably know her work, Sharon Salzberg. She um, had a webinar recently with the launch of her new book, and I attended it. And it made me think back to a time. I think I wrote about it in a blog, and I might have shared it with you. Where I'd spent a summer in Rwanda. I felt like my sister and I had done some really great work. And we were also really, I mean, like 
overwhelmed by XYZ, like a hundred different things, okay? Including experiences and narratives and stories that were told to us by survivors who suffered through like really, really horrific um, injustices against their family. And we, I left Rwanda and I remember flying home through Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and getting a pedicure. And I came back to Montreal and it's, it kind of still mortifies me like that I did that because it just felt such like how cliche and Western to do something like that, like on the heels of like, it's just so hard to, to um, reconcile, right? And I think as a result of her talk, I, I thought with maybe some self-compassion that I needed to do a little bit of just like tending to myself as a way of kind of, I don't know, recovering a little bit. And I don't know, I, I just wonder if you wanna, uh, say anything about that. Oh, and it sounds also like integrating some of your experiences, finding resources to cope. And it's interesting also, like in that I was hearing you be quite hard on yourself around like, well, I shouldn't have done that. That was not an appropriate thing to do. And and part of what was coming up there is this connection to, to wanting to alleviate the suffering of others and think like, what can I do? This is so overwhelming. Um, this is so overwhelming for them. And and then also being able to, to check into how you're feeling and, and noticing that like, wow, this is also overwhelming for me. And being able to respond to that in this moment doesn't mean that you're going to give up the efforts to, to do something in the world to continue to engage in, um, in projects to support others, which we know, like in your case, this was not like the pedicure that ended your commitment to engaging in social change work. Um, and But it can be interesting how those isolated incidents, you can have narratives of guilt and narratives of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's sort of, it's inappropriate. So there's like internalized messages about that. But then there's also in a social mediated world where you've got like anonymous people on social media, like just being nasty, right? That that I think compounds it, right? Then you really actually feel like you've legitimately done something wrong. You're a bad person, right? So you have to kind of unshackle yourself from that set of that chorus of, of voices, right? Yeah. And, you know, the flip side is that if you walked away from that experience and thought like, well, that was terrible. I never want to think about it ever again. All I'm going to do is get pedicures. Then that would be a bit of a different conversation. You know, that would be a different. And, but I also don't want to like shame people who maybe do have to step away from being in really high stress um, high stress roles. And when I've worked with, with people who have worked in social work professions, for example, or, or people who are really involved in activist movements, it can feel like you're betraying the movement and that you're betraying yourself and your sense of identity if sometimes setting a boundary or not being able to continuously be engaged at this really intense level, um, if that's not going to, to work. And paying attention to how you're feeling uh, and then also thinking about the different ways that you can engage and the different ways that you can you can act to try and bring about social change. I really love the work of, of Rachel Cargill on, and Black feminist activists and scholars on this topic around how sometimes um, really focusing on, on your own well-being and on living well can in itself be social change work when we live in a social system where particularly for certain groups, people are told that you're not allowed to experience well-being or pleasure um, or enjoyment and so then finding a space to be able to to focus on that can also unto itself be this embodied social change 
you know, when society is often telling us that we're not enough and we need to do more, even with self-care, you know, you're not doing self-care right. You need to buy Mm. this juice cleanse or this yoga membership. And if you enjoy juice cleanses or yoga memberships, that is great. But if that's adding to your stress load and feeling like you're not enough, then this doesn't seem very caring to me. You know, it doesn't seem like really engaging in, in compassion. So tuning into what you need and being able to make space for, for yourself and for being a person and to, to thinking that, that you are enough and you're deserving of care and you're deserving of attention and kindness um, and finding ways to do that, that, that connect and feel meaningful. I think that this can be its, its own form of, of care work. Oh, thank you. What a beautiful way to end our conversation. How long do you still have to go before you earn your your doctorate? That is a great question um, and a scary one. I think a couple couple years, let's say. I wish you all the best. It's so exciting to imagine you uh, wandering around McGill campus. Uh, I have lots of fond memories of that place. So thank you, Carla, for being with us. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode of Purposeful Empathy. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free of your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from what's holding you back? At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice. You get to do so anytime and from anywhere. Visit GrandHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.